0: My guest on today's show is Michael Mobison, the well-known investment strategist currently plying his wares at Blue Mountain Capital. Michael joined me for the second time to discuss a new piece he published entitled, Who's on the Other Side? Our conversation dives into the work, discussing how investors can focus on process over outcome, the four types of investment edges, behavioral traits of individual and group portfolio managers, Portfolio position weighting, informational edges in paying attention and complexity, principal agent issues that create cycles and opportunities during dislocations, the growth of private markets, and implementing strategic frameworks day to day. We close with a discussion of data analytics in the game of lacrosse. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Movison. Michael, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. I want to dive into your recent paper. And as a framing of that, one of the things that you've talked a lot about is this concept of process versus outcome. And it's now kind of known that people should think about process over outcome and behaviorally we all think of outcome anyway. But you had this question of how long should you suffer losses? It's such a problem for everyone. It is a huge problem. I don't know that there's a good answer to that. Part of it is there are
1: two components maybe I would think about. One is to think about the system itself or the activity itself and how much is skill and how much is luck. And obviously, the more luck there is, essentially, actually, the more patient you have to be to see if a good process is going to reveal a skill over time. So it's sort of this backwards thing, like you need larger sample sizes when there's more luck. And the second thing is to constantly reevaluate whether the process is a sensible process. Right, so you say like you give your money to a money manager and the results have not been good. You know, there are one of two possibilities. One, there's the skill just hasn't revealed itself and you're seeing a stretch of bad luck. Or the second is they've lost their marbles and they don't know how to manage it anymore. Right, so part of it is to say, can we constantly kind of reassess process? And you know, some of the things I would probably think about is the analytical backbone continue to be sound. Is that organization making sure they are managing and mitigating behavioral things? And the third is sort of an organizational one. Are they dealing with agency issues appropriately? So it'd be those two things is the time horizon probably is a function of the skill-luck combination. And second is you have to check in to say, is that process, does it continue to be robust? But a hard one to
0: answer. You recently wrote a paper that really defines inefficiencies in this sort of elusive term, edge. And I thought it'd be really fun to walk through that paper.
1: Well, I think that this is something that clearly all investors think about, or really anybody that's dealing with things that are probabilistic, you sort of say, I'm doing a transaction. How do I know that I'm on the better side of things? And this is also something I've talked a lot about over the years, but really hadn't sat down and really formally codified this to some degree. And so I would characterize this as a work of synthesis. And we ended up using an acronym, BAIT, just because it's kind of an easy way to remember things. And so we talked about four areas in this taxonomy. One is Behavioral. And by the way, to some degree, everything's behavioral, right? So in some ways, we could distill it all back to that. But behavioral was the first one. The second was analytical. So you and I have the same information, but we analyze it differently and come to different conclusions. The third is informational. Does you know something I don't know or I know something you don't know? So there's some asymmetries. But there's a lot of interesting sub-themes and informational, mostly related to attention. And then the last is technical, right? People have to do things for reasons that are non-fundamental. And those can be interesting opportunities. And there are often things like liquidity become really important. You have to be a liquidity provider. Yeah. So those were the sort of the four high level things. The other thing I'll just say in doing this research, I probably underappreciate it, which is that there's really a market for information. So if figuring things out or what you want to do, but there's also a different market, like an asset market for how to implement the ideas. Those are kind of handy to keep as separate different things. You might have what you think is edge, but it might be very difficult to monetize it. Or you might have just a tiny bit of edge, but you can really monetize it efficiently. So there's a whole, again, like a little matrix you could create just on those two concepts that I think is also really important. So it's not just having edge, it's a way to make that edge translate into excess returns.
0: Let's start on the behavioral side. What is it about behavior that drives someone's ability to have an edge?
1: Just to clarify a specific point, a lot of what we talk about in the behavioral stuff are things like the heuristics and biases. You know, so these are the mistakes you and I make as people. So we're overconfident and we anchor and how things are framed affect how we decide and so forth. The point I try to stress is that it's not clear to me that those little things actually manifest in markets, right, because they can cancel out, essentially. So the market is really, you're not competing, it's not me, Michael versus Ted, it's really Ted versus the market, and that's a different dynamic. So you're competing with this thing, a complex system called the market. So as a consequence, really the level you want to think about is how do people behave in groups, in group settings? How do they follow one another? So there are two or three things that I highlighted. The first is something that we see everywhere there are probabilistic decisions being made, and that's over-extrapolation. So people take the recent past, and they think the recent past will continue going forward. And there's some very nice work on this. By the way, Andre Schleifer has a new book out where they talk about this. And basically, here's a simple example. If the markets have been doing well, people think the markets will continue to do well. If They've done poorly. They'll continue to do poorly. And so over-extrapolation is one we see very commonly. This is a, another very common thing in sports, for instance. An athlete, a baseball player, has a great season, and you know he comes up for free agency. Well, if he's come off a great season, he's more likely to get an attractive contract than if he's come off sort of a below-average season. Again, luck could be the complete explainer of that most recent performance, but somehow gets extrapolated going forward. The second area I think, and this goes back to really complex system stuff, is how the interesting question of how does the wisdom of crowds flip over to the madness of crowds, right? So the wisdom of crowds exists when you have heterogeneous agents, good aggregation mechanisms. So in other words, the information is being brought together and you have good incentives. And by the way, that should be your default assumption is that markets are pretty smart and probably smarter than you are. But we have centuries of data showing that from time to time, markets go haywire. And I think the, the best way to explain that is this notion of correlated beliefs. Whereas our views may have been heterogeneous before, we come to believe the same thing. And there I like to invoke this really wonderful line from Seth Klarman at Baupost where he says, value investing in its core is the marriage between a contrarian streak and a calculator, which is to say you want to examine the other side of the topic when everyone seems to be either bullish or bearish. But the most important piece is a calculator, which means that has led to an inefficiency, a set of expectations for that asset price that are too high or too low which would allow you to take advantage of it. So just sort of being aware of that framework, that framework as distinct from sort of classic efficient market frameworks like rational agent market models or even arbitrage models, I think is a
0: really, really rich vein to think about the behavioral stuff. When you put those two things together, you have over-extrapolation of trends, and then you have the wisdom of crowds turning into the madness of crowds. It sort of dovetails right into this other paper you wrote on cyclicality because you could see how Those two sets of beliefs take a good idea to an extreme. How do you, as an individual or as an investment manager, think about you're trying to modulate your own behavior as it relates to the market, and at the same time, you need to be aware that things happen in cycles because of group behavior?
1: And you can think about this. Even corporate performance is quite pro-cyclical. Things like mergers and acquisitions, share buybacks, IPOs have historically been associated with high market levels, right? But on some level, that makes sense, right? Because when do companies have money? Is when they've been doing well, right? So, in other words, there's some logic to that. And by contrast, MA tends to dry up when you've had difficult times, IPOs dry up, and buybacks dry up. Why? Because these companies are struggling, right? Or they don't feel as flush as they do. So, there is that component of it. And, right, again, it's just like anything in life, right? Investing is all about trying to find that middle ground, right? When everyone's getting really excited about something, you want to Tone it back down. You're regressing, right? You're trying to regress toward the mean. And when people are really pessimistic, you want to bring it back up. And but it's all very difficult. I mean, just to be super clear, it's very difficult behaviorally because you think about March of two thousand nine, so ten years ago. You mathematically the S and P had touched six seventy. You know, earnings power is probably eighty five bucks. You had credit spreads a thousand. You know, VIX is going through the roof. And you say, from a normalized point of view this is an incredible opportunity. You don't need to go four digits on your HP 12C to know that this is actually a pretty interesting time to invest. But the flip side of that is if you were involved in markets, you just gone through a horrific period. It's conditional, right? And so you're saying like, gee, I, I can't afford to lose another 50% from here. This could be a real problem. And so- Even though the math is straightforward, I think psychologically and behaviorally, it's extraordinarily difficult. And again, when things are going really well, it's the same thing. You know, the dot-com thing, your neighbor across the street is making a killing in internet stocks, and you're feeling like a chump, and you're like, maybe I can get part of that. And we saw that, by the way, Bitcoin was a classic example, so we saw that in late 2017. Same thing, is that people felt if they weren't involved, they were missing something monumental. And of course, they come in right at the last minute just to see the price swoon.
0: But once you're able to define out as you have some of these behavioral characteristics of inefficiencies, what do you do to improve?
1: Well, I think you try to monitor all these things. And that's why I would just anchor back on that Klarman thing, which is to say every time everyone seems to be uniformly constructive or pessimistic about something, you first want to dispassionately examine the other side. But the key thing is really going back to what is the asset price baking in. And you know I say this with more than a dash of hyperbole that the biggest mistake in the investment business is a failure to distinguish between fundamentals and expectations, which is to say when fundamentals are good, we all want to buy. Welcome to the human race, right? And when fundamentals are bad, you want to sell. And really the mindset you should have is that of a handicapper a horse race handicapper the the fundamentals are how fast the horse will run the odds on the tote board are what is priced in and what you're really looking for is not winners of races but rather mispricing in the odds that's the key component to always introduce to sort of ground this in a quality decision making process so whether you're totally managing all the behavioral things i mean it's hard not to be caught up in it to some degree but That's one way to sort of ground yourself to say, I'm going to be determined to always think about fundamentals and expectations as two separate things. And they'll inform one another, but they're separate things, and then make your decisions accordingly.
0: How different is it when you have, say, a fund where there's really a, a sole PM compared to there may be a PM, but they have more of a group process? So there's interesting research on this,
1: and I think this is relatively new findings last two or three years. What it was found was that the funds that delivered the most alpha were actually funds with three portfolio managers, and better than single managers, and by the way, better than two and four. So what's interesting about three is odd number, right? So you don't need to have a consensus. You can have two versus one and make decisions. So that's an interesting question is whether... I mean, the whole purpose of things like committees or groups is to try to find that center ground and avoid extremes that an individual may be more subject to. I think the challenge in any sort of team setting or committee setting is that you really have to be extremely mindful about the process in that case. And so the first thing is to have a team of people, if you're going to say, let's say, do three, four portfolio managers, that you really want to make sure you have cognitive diversity. So people that really do think about the world, maybe different sets of skills, maybe different personalities. And then the second thing is you really want to manage the process effectively, right? which is the key to why you have group decision making is that it allows you to surface all alternatives, vet them appropriately, and then decide. And so the point of a committee or a team is to allow you to do that as efficiently as possible. So I think whereas money management, the industry has evolved. By the way, in my career, it used to be almost all single manager PM funds. There was more than three-quarters of them. Now that's less than a quarter. So we've really seen a watershed change in the last quarter century. But I still think that people are not fully aware of how to think about the process of doing that the most effective
0: way. Yeah. So that's- you know, it's funny. As you're saying that, and I put on my allocator hat, I'm thinking – so on the one hand, you could probably ask a set of questions. Let's say there's 3PMs to try to figure out if there's cognitive diversity. If you've realized that there is, that can cause – all kinds of issues of whether these people can get along.
1: That's right. And that's the dual edge of diversity because you often hear, and most organizations will talk about how great diversity is, and I think it is done appropriately. But the downside is if people are too different from one another, they don't interact. And if they're too similar, of course, then it's groupthink, right? So there's sort of this Goldilocks between these two extremes. And if you survey the, the diversity literature, it's pretty ambiguous about whether it's a net benefit or a net drag. But I will say that I think that if it's done properly, it should be a net positive. I'll also mention, just talking about this for a moment, that when we talk about diversity, we specifically said cognitive diversity, but most organizations dwell on social category diversity. So that would be age, gender, ethnicity, and so forth. Cognitive diversity, as we've been describing, would be things like personality or training or experience, dispositions in some way, shape, or form. There's only one paper that I've ever seen that attempted to tackle whether it was cognitive diversity or social category diversity that added value and what that paper found and it was a couple thousand mutual funds and it's hard to tag these things really super effectively but what that paper found was that social category diversity was sort of a neutral wasn't an additive or super negative but the cognitive diversity indeed added value so i would call that sort of a nascent framework for us that's an area for additional work on that but i think the key there is to say teams committees Multiple portfolio managers can be really good, but you have to be very, very thoughtful about the people and the process in order to make that work for you.
0: And if you're sitting across the table from a team, I mean, you sort of sit in this interesting seat where you're at a fund, but you also talk to lots of fund managers. How do you think you tease that out in a series of questions? Part of it it's interesting, even on this cognitive diversity, it might be, I mean, I guess you can talk to
1: people, but it might be literally just looking at their own backgrounds and what kinds of things did you study in school? What are your interests away from the office or what have you? So that might be as simple as something like that. And in terms of the process, I really would want to know that people are versed in the key components of it, right? And I will usually say it's the composition of the team, both in size and who's part of it the process, and that's probably the the nuts and bolts of it. And you say to me, where most processes break down, I think, is actually that. And it's often because there's a leader. He or she has a senior person, typically. And they either wittingly or unwittingly sort of undermine the process of surfacing different alternatives. And then the third is how you decide, right, which is kind of voting strategies. And once again, for example, a simple rule, if you're ever voting on something, it always should be independent ballots. What is not uncommon is for people just to go around the room and say, hey, Ted, what do you think? So, you know, Ted, you're a really important smart guy. So what you say will deeply influence what I think or how I answer, because I'll say, A, I'd rather align myself with Ted, the smart guy, and B, it may be politically thoughtful to do that as well. So some might be just examination from arm's length, but some might be to, to really to query people as to whether they really understand how to go through those processes as explicitly as possible. And again, I think it's rare that you'll hear people really be able to explain what they're doing. And you can even guide them a little bit on that. But that to me would be sort of how I might approach that.
0: All right, let's turn to the next acronym, A, for analytical.
1: There are a couple of buckets. And this is actually a very rich area. One is just that there's differential skill. And the, the example we give in the piece is There's been really good work by Brad Barber and Terry O'Dean on this, and that's just institutions versus individuals. And there's a really nice vein of work showing that when institutions compete with individuals, institutions tend to do much better. And and one example, the Barber and O'Dean paper is on trading in Taiwan. Taiwan was a particularly nice data set because they could really identify the characters behind all these different trades. And they found that institutions delivered excess returns. Individuals lost money. But you can see other examples of that, like participation in IPOs and other things. Now the challenge is often that individuals are becoming directly less involved with markets. They're now working more through intermediaries so that, while that's still really interesting, may be less relevant. The second thing is this idea of waiting information. And you know, I sort of got on this idea that I heard this story and I think that it's maybe partially apocryphal, but it's interesting. So. Bill Gates, when he was CEO of Microsoft, used to carry around a list of priorities for the organization. So it's called like the top 10 things we're interested in. And this is now the kind of early 1990s and a few of his senior engineers go off to a conference and it was about this thing called the internet. And they come back and they say, Bill. This thing called the internet seemed like it's going to be a really big deal. And Bill goes, hey, look, it's on my list. It's number six. See, like I got it covered. And they're like, no, Bill, you don't seem to understand. Like this should be number one with a huge gap and then everything else follows. And I think that that's when Microsoft made a big pivot toward understanding the importance of the internet. And so there's an example where it wasn't that he didn't have it on his list. He did, but he had it in the wrong spot, right? Right. And this is very much akin to position sizing your portfolio, right? Like you and I can have the exact same 25 stocks, but what we know is how we size our positions will have a huge impact on how our portfolio performs over time. So there's one interesting thing, and this goes back to sort of the stuff on overconfidence, which is you can think about two dimensions. One is sort of the strength of a signal. So, for example, if you flip a coin 10 times and it comes up tails seven times, that's a strong signal, right? And then the other is a validity, which is based on basically sample size, right? So you say 10 flips, that's probably not telling me all that much. So there's an example. If you have strong strength and low validity, like small sample size, people tend to be overconfident. So you flip that thing 10 times, they go, it's a tails biased coin, right? The opposite side would be like if you flip the coin 10,000 times and it comes up tails 5,100 times, right? So it's 5,149. You go, ah, it doesn't seem that big a difference. But it's 10,000 flips, right? That statistically is extremely unlikely, right? So in the former case, it's much more likely to be a fair coin than in the latter case. But in those cases, we tend to be underconfident, right? So this idea of how we weight information I think is super interesting. The other really, really big one, and I think this is, if you said to me, what are the biggest behavioral issues that we tend to deal with? One would be overconfidence. And the main concept there is over precision. We tend to think we understand the future better than we do. But the second is really confirmation bias, which is you've struggled to come up with a decision. You've really worked hard on stock X or whatever it is. Confirmation bias basically says you're going to dismiss, discount, disaffirm information that is against your thesis. And if there's information that's sort of ambiguous, (laughs) it's a jump ball, it's always gonna go your direction, right? And I think that's something we all tend to do because we really prefer not to continue to think about the problem. So that's an interesting question, especially in markets where a lot of the feedback is noisy based on asset prices. How do you create structures in such a way that you become an effective updater of new information? And it's super hard. You need to be super disciplined. But that, to me, is a big analytical one, right? So you're updating your views based on new information.
0: I break down that analytical piece. I think I'm hearing two different things. The first is, you know, how much raw horsepower does someone have? And, and you can apply that to individual ideas, like how good are they at taking a whole bunch of information about a company and deciding whether that's a short or long or whatever it is. The other is really portfolio construction. Right. Just sort of this math and probability weighting exercise. In some sense, if you're sitting across the table from someone or lots and lots of people to take the 10,000 coin flips, after a while you might think, eh, they seem like they have a lot more horsepower than the next guy. It feels like it'd be tougher to tease out is someone good at weighting their ideas? How would you try to address that in the context of, say, trying to evaluate someone as a portfolio manager? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that might be just having conversations. I think the waiting thing is really important, but also the updating thing is important. Those are the things I'd really would want to tease out. So one of the things that's interesting I've always found and on this information waiting thing, and this comes up with my course at Columbia Business School, right? So at the very end of the semester, the students pitch stocks to real portfolio managers and they're doing buys and sells. And it's a great exercise for them, right, because they're getting real-time feedback from a real professional. But one of the things I always stress to them is for most stocks, there tend to be two or three sort of key issues. You might call them linchpin issues, perhaps. And the ability to find those things and dwell on them as soon as possible tends to be very helpful. And that really might be this idea of information waiting. So you might have two investors, one who goes through this long laundry list of things around the company of which you know eight of the 10 items are not that relevant for value, and two are really essential, whereas the other person will dwell on the thing that's most important. So again, how do you, can you tease that out? I think it might be tricky, but it's almost always the PM that can understand the kind of pivotal issues for a particular company. And by the way, that's often a complaint I hear with PMs, portfolio managers and analysts. The analysts tend to value the breadth. So they know everything and all these different details. And the PM will say, like, I don't really care about 90% of what you're talking about. Let's focus on these two or three key issues, these linchpin issues. So that might be one way I would try to understand, like, what is the headline issues? And does it seem like they've got those things lined up correctly?
0: That dichotomy of the analyst and the PM, and if you marry that with the confirmation bias issue, is there any research that talks about the way that someone thinks about it. So if somebody thinks about an idea as just, these are the key Lynchpin issues, does it become easier for them to move on? Because they haven't done all this work to understand all 80 issues. They just really understand the three things and it's easier to understand the three things at 10 different companies than 80 things at 10 (laughs) different (laughs) companies. Super interesting, yeah. And I think, well, there's a thread of research and I'm sure you've seen this,
1: but it's really interesting. And it also goes to our analyst portfolio manager differences. And the research shows that as you give people additional pieces of information about something, the accuracy of their forecast don't improve at all, or their bets don't improve at all, but their confidence tends to soar. And you know, part of that is the original study was done back in the 1970s and it was with handicappers. So if you're only allowed to get whatever, five or ten bits of information about a horse, you're gonna probably pick the stuff that's most important first, right? So and I think in you know, a handicap that might be relatively self-evident. So I think the key task here is to figure out what matters first. And I think that's where PMs, so they're dwelling on that left-hand side of that graph, which is not that much information is accurate as a lot more information, and then not so confident, which means that the view is sort of lightly held and more malleable when confronted with new evidence. And so I think that is probably the sweet spot on this thing. And I think as an analyst, as you gather all this more information, you tend to think you know more than you become more confident in your scenario. And that may be a mechanism that locks you in more than you want to be locked in. So that might be one way to think about that. Now, it probably does take a little bit of experience and savvy. And, and you, you have to understand competitive strategy and economics and so forth to be able to isolate, identify those linchpin issues. I mean, that, that in and of itself is an extraordinary skill. But that might be one way we could parse that a little bit. Yeah.
0: I think this flows nicely into the next inefficiency or edge, which is this informational piece. How have you thought about the importance of information as competitive advantage? There
1: are a couple components to this. The first is really this idea, can you find something out before other people can? Every regulation out there is meant to make information dissemination uniform and relatively low cost. But to state the obvious, every idea starts somewhere. So someone's got to know it before other people do And there's obviously a big arms war, for example, with data and unstructured data to try to glean some of that information. So it's a lot going on with that. That hasn't gone away. By the way, one of the things I really liked, there was a really nice sort of natural experiment with this. So when Reg FD went into place, I think it was 2000, Reg FD was meant again to have uniform dissemination and low cost dissemination of information so that individuals and institutions could be on the same footing. But one group that was exempt from that was actually credit analysts. And so equity analysts were getting the same information in Rails, but credit analysts were able to get sort of inside baseball. And it turns out the importance of credit rating changes went way up after Reg FD, which is super cool. So that was an example of asymmetric information. Market recognized that that was important. Why it's an interesting natural experiment is that Dodd-Frank in 2010 repealed that access. So the credit guys went right back to everybody else and immediately the impact of credit upgrades and downgrades actually went away. So there's a really nice example where that information truly was important, the market recognized it and then when it was taken away, it went away. But I think for informational the thing that is by far the most interesting to me at least is this notion of attention. And by the way, this is way beyond just markets, this is just in our day-to-day lives. So which is that all this information's out there, but you either can choose to or are going to pay attention to only a little part of it. And you know, I'll just mention one thing I thought was a kind of a fun thing. Everyone now has probably seen the very famous Simons and Shabri Gorilla video. So you're shown these two teams passing around a basketball, you know, light shirt, dark shirt, and you're asked to count the passes. And the key there is that your attention is being focused on this particular task. And then, of course, this gorilla comes in the middle and beats her chest and then walks off toward the end. And many people do not see it. So what's also kind of interesting is I I was just looking at this over the weekend. I'm reading this book by Eric Topol about healthcare, And I was reminded of this, that there was a study with radiologists. And so they show these radiologists, these lung x-rays, or scans, I guess, And they actually superimposed a gorilla in the corner of it, and it turns out that 83% of the radiologists failed to see the gorilla. Now, what's also cool is they have eye-tracking software, and they can note that about half the radiologists who missed it looked right at the gorilla, and they didn't see it. Now, again, they're not looking for gorillas. They're looking for cancer, right? So- the attention issue. So the point is that what will you pay attention to is super, super important. And by the way, there's a really interesting line of research on how attention can really affect your happiness. What you pay attention to can affect how happy you are as a person. So attention, I think, is a big deal. And I think that's something that remains certainly wide open. And the last area that I think, and it's related to this, but there's certainly also research showing that very complex situations tend to be difficult for people to sort out. So for example... There's research showing, for example, if you think about a value chain for an industry, so companies and suppliers and so forth, that if one part of the value chain, so for example, if a customer does poorly in an earnings report, for instance, it likely indicates that the supplier is going to do poorly because they're obviously interconnected. And the market can be slightly slow on the uptake on that. Now, again, these are areas that people have identified, and I'm sure it's gotten more efficient, but still there's some evidence that complexity tends to create opportunities for those that can decode it more effectively and trade on it effectively.
0: How much, as more and more active managers use data analysis, artificial intelligence, whatever the buzzword is, for using computers to take what they know to be fact patterns in their brains and, and making them faster, Do you think about something like paying attention? How much does that advantage go away as the attention of computers becomes longer duration than just, say, high-frequency yeah. trading?
1: So I would just say this, that and this actually reaches back a little bit on one of the points we try to make in analytical, well, I think a lot of it has to do with time horizon. Yeah. So my sense is that a lot of where, and, you know, natural language processing and computers and so forth will allow some parts of the market to be very efficient in the short run. You can make shorter term predictions. And that will probably make that aspect of the market more efficient. And by the way, as a, a discretionary manager, I'd be very loath to try to compete with those kinds of folks. You know, I don't want to compete with the Renaissance technologies or two Sigma, certainly on their playing field, they're really, really good at it. The flip side is if you said like time horizon, like if I'm looking out three to five years, a much longer time horizon, you know, it's not inconceivable that Ted, you and I get together in a few years and, you know, we would say like the future is gonna be electric autonomous vehicles. Make this up, right? You know, that's not implausible at some point in the future. Well, what will the world look like and what are the primary, secondary, and tertiary effects of that happening? There is no program that can help you, computer that help you do that, because this is not in the data, right? Defining the bands of where you as a person are likely to be able to add value versus where you can't. So I think in the shorter-term stuff, it's extremely difficult to beat these things. Now, whether, for example, a natural language processing would reveal... For example, this cancer drug and the beneficiaries of it. I don't know if there's specific people working on that. But again, I would just assume that things that are shorter term now are probably more efficient.
0: So the behavioral analytical information, a lot of it, a little less behavioral, is tied to that kind of notion of companies. Sort of how do you think about companies? So let's shift over to technical, which you know, it gets more back to sign of the market. Yeah, it goes back to the market. And I think that
1: maybe the overarching theme and technical is really this notion of principal agent issues and are people doing things that are not related to fundamentals. And so we talk about a few things. The first is this notion of just basically forced buyers and sellers. One of the models I like a lot with your Yale connection is John Genicotopoulos' model on the leverage cycle. And the story is pretty straightforward. You know, you sort of have these optimistic people for whatever reason they're optimistic, and they have access to leverage, so they buy a particular asset, they drive it up, they use leverage to do that, and then John and John's story there's a, some sort of bad news, some sort of shock, which forces that has the asset price go down. So now all of a sudden we get this the positive feedback on the way up becomes positive feedback on the way down is those people have to sell some of that asset which goes down and then they get margin calls and so when they get margin calls it forces them to sell more to get their margin back their to equity back in line but then there's another factor and this is what john really emphasizes is the terms of the margin become more onerous right and we saw this even in the housing market but in other words i would lend you 80 cents you put up 20 cents of equity. Now I say, no, I'm going to lend you 50 cents and you have to put 50. So so you, know that you have to sell even more to meet your, our new stringent margin requirements. And that compels the asset price to go down. So that positive feedback on the way up and positive feedback on the way down is a great example. Now, these don't happen every day, but some of the greatest, biggest things we've ever seen are related to the leverage cycle. And I think that was sort of a central actor in what we had in the financial crisis. The other example I've always been fascinated with is arbitrage. And by, by the way, you go back to sort of how do we get to market efficiency? There are sort of three classic ways to do that. One is sort of mean variance. So we have rational agents that go around and understand their preferences and and buy and sell accordingly. I don't think anybody really believes that cartoon version, but it's a really nice sort of benchmark from which we can depart to understand how markets work. But the second argument, I think, is where most finance professors would be. And this is sort of the absence of arbitrage. There are no $20 bills lying on the street. And so if there are aberrant price gaps between price and value, that these arbitrageurs who cruise markets, who buy what's cheap and sell what's dear and bring prices back in line and collect a little toll along the way. And as a first order consideration, that's absolutely right. I mean, there are arbitrageurs and they do this every day. And the interesting thing is that it is often the case when some of the arbitrage opportunities are among the most attractive, the arbitrageurs don't show up. And the main reason they don't show up is because they don't have access to capital. And it goes back to these sort of principal agent examples. So we talked a bit about this, and probably I think one of the best documented examples was long-term capital management. And a lot of long-term capital management book was classic arbitrage trades. Many of those things were as plain vanilla, you know, the -the on-the-run, off-the-run 30-year treasury bond. That's a straight-up textbook example of arbitrage. And, you know, what you do basically in that case is that typically the 30-year trades a little bit with a little slightly lower yield than the 29 and a half year, even though mathematically exactly the same security. So you go long the 29 and a half, you short the 30, and you just wait for the spread to contract again. Well, the spread widened, again, classic arbitrage, and the arbitrage didn't show up, and the spread just kept getting wider and wider. Of course, this is a very levered position, and so long-term capital management ended up being a lot of trouble. And I think we probably will have, well-documented from the financial crisis, other examples of these arbitrage opportunities. So that's a really interesting one, too. Again, it's very episodic, but these arbitrageurs don't show up. And the last thing I'll say that I've, I've always found interesting, I think some of this has been diminished in recent years because of technology and trading and so forth, but this idea of demand shocks. We teach in finance that demand curves are largely horizontal, right? And that's because you can create supply. But what we also know is demand curves are downward sloping. And the, the original literature on that really came out of things going in and out of indexes, where there was nothing different about the company or its prospects from day one to day two, besides the fact that it was now in an index, and that created this sort of demand. So there have been some really interesting papers about like who has the money, what do they want to buy, and what does that mean for these downward sloping demand curves, and there's good evidence that you create these sort of excess returns as a consequence simply of these demand shocks. So there are these little technical things that, again, they have nothing to do with the fundamentals of the businesses per se, but they're these features of the market that you know if you're well positioned you can probably take advantage of what does it take to be well positioned to take advantage of i think the big thing is just having access to capital and that's something that runs through all these themes right because you mentioned briefly this sort of stuff on pro cyclicality is again when things are going well people feel good about the world and they want to do more of what made them feel good and when the markets have done poorly they want to do less of what feels bad and so yeah it's access to capital The question is how do you as if you're an investor, how do you make sure that you always have access to capital? Now, you know, you worked for a very famous endowment. I think some of these endowments certainly should be in a position to do that. You think about guys like Warren Buffett, you know, one of the advantages is he's constantly has float. He always has money coming in the door and that really
0: helps for you to be able to behave in a way that counters this pro-cyclicality. If you take outside of Baupost, which is a notorious example of, you know, Seth and the team have run for a long time with a big healthy cash balance and from their returns have sort of earned the right and trust of their investors to do that. If you're trying to say allocate capital to managers who I think have an opportunity to go the other way, what are you looking for? what comes to mind is rick bookstaber a couple of years ago wrote an interesting book
1: called the end of theory and the end of theory basically argues that in finance and economics we don't have very good theories of crisis and sort of like when the mail's being delivered on time and the trains are running like we have pretty good stuff that helps us understand that but crisis we're not very good at and so he advocates for an agent-based model that allows you to simulate the world many times and see sort of these difficult situations, right? But he had a really interesting little discussion toward the end where he said, it's almost like a Ulysses contract, which is to say, you go to a sovereign wealth fund or whatever it is, some organization has capital, and you say to them, listen, here are certain either price levels or spreads for credit or whatever it is where if this happens, We want you to give us money. And we in fact want to do Ulysses contract with you. We want to say, if the credit spreads get to a thousand basis points or whatever the number is, we're going to come and ask you for X dollars and we want you to write the check. And by the way, you're not going to want to write the check, right, because you're going to be freaked out. And so some mechanism like that, the question is whether you could create these sort of pre-commitment contracts that would allow you to act in these situations. And by the way, I'm reminded, I mean, this helps me think about like like this great work by Atul Gawande on checklists, right? This great book, The Checklist Manifesto. And if you read the book, I mean, there's sort of like two different kinds of checklists. One is called a do confirm, right? So you got to go about your job, da, da, da. And then every now and then you stop and pause and say, can I confirm that I'd done all the stuff I was supposed to do? But the second kind of checklist is called uh redo. And the redo says like something bad's happened. You're freaked out the left engine on your airplane is dead. You go to the checklist and it says, read, left engine dies. Here's what you do in this order. And the reason a read, do checklist is really helpful is it takes the emotion out and gives you an action plan. And I think we need something akin to that in the world of investing, which is take the emotion out, have an action plan and allow people to act on these things. Now, look, maybe someday the world will end, (laughs) but so far, the world hasn't ended. So, I
0: think more times than not, these kinds of pre commitment contracts could be really helpful for people. Now, how do you handle? There's this dichotomy of the preconditioned contracts to handle a crisis, but then on a day to day basis, when we're not in crisis, you still have some of these sort of more micro technical opportunities. Yeah. Those tend to be not as
1: large, right, or not as difficult to deal with, right? And look, we, like many other investment organizations, have people that do this all day. So they're in and out all day trying to think about these kinds of things. I guess we're talking about, at least for me, where the principal agent issues become the most pronounced is when you have these really major dislocations. And it happens.
0: And we've seen, you know, if you go across markets, right, there are certain assets like distressed debt, where people have raised commitment funds. Private equity is probably the greatest example of you have multiple years... Have you thought about any ways to execute on that in the public markets? No, I don't know a way to do that. And
1: I've been thinking a lot about this topic of public versus private markets. And there are certain both of those markets have their pros and cons, right? But that may be something that may be a check in the a benefit for private markets that you, allows you to have these mechanisms in place. Now, I guess you could do something similar, just to say public market. We're invested in some public vehicle. And if we have, again, preordained, whether it's some magnitude of some drawdown or some valuation levels or some combination of these things, that we go back to our pre-commitment contracts. But I'm not aware of anything. Like you said, you, you do see it much more in private stuff than you do. What are your thoughts on private markets since you mentioned it? We wrote a piece a couple of years ago about the decline in public companies. And a lot of it is smaller companies moving out. But one of the points I thought was interesting is just taking a step back and saying, you know, you're the CIO of Yale, let's say in 1975, and you want exposure to US equities. Basically, you'd buy the Wilshire 5000, which only has like 3,700 companies by the way now. <laughs> you want know, the Wilshire 5000, right? And maybe you'd get in some early stage venture, but basically your base would be covered right there. Now, if you're doing the same thing, you'd have early stage venture, you'd have late stage venture, you'd have private equity, which has gotten significant, and then you'd have public markets. And part of it is you and I as regular guys don't have access to all that stuff, whereas a sophisticated endowment might have access to that. So I've been fascinated by the sort of ecosystem, especially, for example, these unicorns. Now, what's interesting, of course, this 2019 appears to be a year where a lot of these things are coming public, and we'll see how this goes. It's a fascinating development. But the notion that you could be a multi-billion dollar valuation company raise hundreds of millions of dollars in late stage venture. And by the way, even to the degree that you can cash out employees so they can monetize, I mean, all the mechanisms that used to be crucial to be done by public markets, now many of these things can be done privately. I think that's really interesting. Now that said, I mean, you, you go through different asset classes. I mean, I think, you know, private Private equity, these multiples are going up on what these guys are paying to acquire businesses, and there may be some justification for that. But these are sort of the interesting dynamics is to say it's been a great asset class.
0: Is the party been going too long kind of thing. When we last recorded a podcast, you had pretty much just arrived here at Blue Mountain. There's a lot of really interesting structural things we've talked about. What's it been like on that side of your day job of taking these frameworks and seeing how they apply inside this organization? Yeah, I
1: think a lot of it for most investment organizations, what we've been talking about, I hope, should be mostly mom and apple pie for people, right? In other words, there's nothing here that should be shocking. The challenge, I think, every day is sort of two dimensions. One is having some flexibility to think about these things in the first place, right? So just most investment professionals are really busy making money and don't allocate a ton of time to thinking about these. And then the second is really, what are the processes you can put in place to make sure you're trying to do these things as effectively as possible? know, we talked a few minutes ago about whether you wanna call it a team or a committee and sort of those dynamics. And the challenge is to put into place the things that we know allow those things to work well and to sidestep or avoid the things that don't allow those to work well. Who's on the other side, you know, the name of this report It does sound like a very basic question, but it's a really interesting question is every time you do something, ask that question, right? And you should hopefully have a satisfactory answer for it. You know, it's just, again, that's just like a discipline thing versus anything else. So the other thing about our industry in general is that, and this actually goes back to principal agent issues, is that sometimes people feel like they have to do things. (laughs) And having to do things can be good and can be not as good. And in one of our pieces, we wrote about that we call it, instead of principal agent problem, we call it principal agent 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 problem. Right. So you, again, you're the the CIO of an endowment. You might have a committee which hires a consultant, which hires a you know asset manager, and then alarm bells if there's poor performance, alarm bells come up and down the chain. And the committee doesn't say like let's do nothing. They always say like we should do something. Right. So you, this notion. And by the way, I think it's a Western thing, maybe an American thing too, like this notion toward action or activity versus doing nothing, you know? So sometimes just sitting on your hands is the best thing to do. And it's very difficult when you have a number of folks, which may not be completely aligned in terms of the and objective, those are sort of the interesting
0: things. So in your day-to-day now, as Andrew brings you in and you have a fantastic organization, there's a lot of ideas getting done, do you get brought into meetings to evaluate? How have you integrated into the process? It's really two parts. One would be just to make sure that, a lot of it is is like just
1: make sure the processes to begin, analytical processes are good, right? So if you have an investment idea, have you, like we talked about before, are the proper ideas being prioritized? Is the presentation, clear and, and so forth. And then and then a lot of it is, yeah, it's process stuff on how group decision making would work. And then there are lots of little sub-projects. Like you want to make sure that, for example, your analytical processes are uniform across different teams, you know. So I mean these are mundane things, but you know, do we calculate return on invested capital calculate the same way? Do we calculate cost of capital the same way? Just to make sure that Everyone's communicating using similar language in such a way that allows us to make comparisons and choices from one thing to another in in an effective fashion.
0: Well, we can't sit down without talking something about sports. And so I thought, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Paul Rabel. I know you were a lacrosse player in college. So I actually, relative to other sports, know very little about lacrosse. So if someone is going to tune in in June and July, whatever it is this year, and watch the PLL on television... What are the key, so if you're doing data analytics on lacrosse, what matters for success? You
1: know, so lacrosse is actually not dissimilar conceptually, I think, to basketball. It's more complex, right, because there are more players, but it's conceptually very similar to basketball. There are a couple interesting differences, but it boils down to possession and possession efficiency. So how many possessions? Now, the reason it's different than basketball is after scoring a goal you have a contested possession in the form of a face-off. And, you know, hockey face-offs, but lacrosse, is like a, it's a real specialization. There are guys that just take face-offs. So if you have an amazing face-off guy, you essentially make it and take it, right? You score a goal, and then you can get the ball back and just do it over and over. What does it
0: take to be an amazing face-off yeah, guy? Yeah, so
1: physical, I mean, these guys are, and by the way, there are people who are really, it's gotten very specialized yeah, I don't know. Quick hands, good center balance. I don't know what those guys do exactly. <laughs> but it's possession, possession, efficiency. And then if you break down possessions, at least on the offensive side, it would be typically what we look at is shots per possession. There's two other weird things about lacrosse. One is you can run behind the goal. So unlike basketball, you can run around. And the reason that's interesting is because it changes the defensive dynamic. So in basketball, the basket's always to your back if you're facing your offensive player and you're playing defense. In lacrosse, the ball could be behind you. It could be behind the goal, so you have to sort of swivel your head back and forth, which is interesting. And the other thing in lacrosse, which is weird, is if you shoot wide and it goes out of bounds, the closest person to the ball gets the ball back. So it's like essentially a free offensive rebound, right? You get the possession back. So how many shots per possession? And then shooting efficiency is probably the single biggest thing. So, And it's like basketball. How efficient are you in shooting? There are some interesting stuff I mostly work on college lacrosse and you know there's a really fascinating arbitrage which is canadian players who generally learn to play in box which is a different game it's in a hockey rank right much closer quarters much more contact and the goal is smaller when they come onto the field they're vastly more efficient shooters so to give you some sense of this the average american shoots like in division one like 28 percent 28% the average 20% Canadian, goals 28%, 20% 28% goals So for every 100 shots, 28% are goals. The average Canadian shoots about 34, 35%. So it's like a seven or 800 basis point arbitrage in the shooting percent, which is kind of interesting, right? So yeah, so I think it's very much like basketball. And when I sort of got, try to think about lacrosse analytics more rigorously, the book that I actually turned to was Dean Oliver's book called Basketball on Paper. And Oliver is a basketball analytics guy. But it was one of the first books that I'd ever seen where they actually mapped all the possessions to understand exactly this notion of how many possessions they have and what the efficiency is and how to measure that efficiency. So that, to me, would be my high-level answer on lacrosse. And there's a lot to be done. Things like shooting efficiency. You know, I I don't know exactly this new league, whether they're gonna have the two point shot, they have a major league lacrosse, but anyway. So there are things like at what point, like NBA, at what point does, does it make sense to take a two point shot versus a one point shot? Where on the field are people efficient? So
0: those sort of heat maps on shooting and stuff like that. So there's a lot to be done. It's really cool. All right. We'll be watching. <laughs> All right. I did look at our last question. and Unfortunately, there's still a list of closing questions <laughs> I hadn't asked you the first time. So we'll go with those. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I like
1: to read a lot. So I don't know if that's quasi work. And I probably read, I don't know, 40 to 50 books a year. So I try to do about a little less than one a week. And that's How do you fun. decide... When you're going to read through the whole book. Yeah, I almost always read the whole book, for better or for worse. I have a large... For every book I read, I buy many more books. So I have a huge library of things I've not read. And I will typically flip through them and try to familiarize myself, at least with that. So reading. But I would say probably actually a sports. And so I'm a big sports fan. I love watching almost any sport on TV. And I still... I've got a bad knee, but the one thing I'm allowed to do is play ice hockey. So I still play ice hockey in a a winter club. And so that's good fun. And the other thing I'll say about that, besides it's good exercise and it's a great sport, there's a lot for the camaraderie in in these locker rooms because hockey happens to be a weird sport where you spend 20 minutes before you play and 20 minutes after sort of changing and unchanging. And there's also a lot of folks that play that are not in the world of finance or business, which is great. So it's like uh, getting access to different
0: walks of life. So yeah, I would probably say reading and sporting. You know, like love to travel and all that kind of stuff. But those would probably be the big ones. So I think you know I play in beer league hockey too, and I have not succeeded in getting any of my teams to not pull the goalie after reading Cliff As's paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, you know it is funny because like. Uh, I'm like a nerd on this. So I almost
1: always know my plus minus, even though in a pickup game, I keep tracking my plus minus. I'm like, I don't know if we could start doing coursey calculations for the different <laughs> players. But, but I like I think about these things analytically. It's like, okay, probably should not worry about these <laughs> cliff-assness analysis. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? Well, I'm sure my wife would say it's how people load the dishwasher in our house. But that's probably not what you care about. <laughs> you know, I, I think in our business, I think the one thing that, it's very easy to be superficial about lots of topics and usually when you dig into something there's a lot more subtlety and, and nuance than people perceive. So especially when I'm reading things and it's funny even when I do a lot of a lot of the research I do or what I write about it's often synthesis. And we do some stuff that's new but a lot of it's synthesis. And it's funny I'll read a book and I'll say oh that's awesome and then I'll go back to it and I when you start to push on the details of it you're know, like I don't know, I don't know, it's not really that It's either not that deep or not that tight. So that would be, I don't know if it's a pet peeve, but that's something that I would say is uh, suboptimal.
0: And in all the reading you do, is there any reading that you almost never miss? (laughs) So probably, I was thinking
1: about this one too. The author who, there are probably two authors who I never miss. And one is Matt Levine at Bloomberg. And that guy is an absolute genius. And, you know, look, he takes topics that are certainly, they're obviously sort of topical things but breaks them down in a way that's very intelligent, I think, and often very entertaining. So he's clearly super smart, and, and his writing is really fun. And the other one's Michael Lewis, who uh, I think probably not all his work is of the exact same quality, but the guy's just an amazing, amazing storyteller, and he's got an amazing nose for interesting topics. And so I'd marvel at both
0: of those guys, how talented they are and what they do every day. So those would be two guys I would point to. All right, what? Is your favorite motto that teaches a life lesson? So, this is going to be very nerdy. So, I went to high school uh, that was run by
1: uh, Benedictine monks, and all of us had to take Latin, which I was not good at. But there was a quote that was some of the monks would talk about, and it was called, uh, the quote is, age quod agis. It's Latin. And age quod agis means do what you're doing literally, but it's more like, you know, in the football, they say, like, do your job. This basically means do your job. And this is something, just a sort of sense of responsibility that whether you're a teammate or part of an organization is just to show up, be in the moment, be present and get after it. And even in school, you know, you complain about how many things, or work, right? You complain about how many things you have to do and all these things that are going on. And I get quote, August would say something like, just put your nose down and get after it, Right. And so this is for our kids, we have five kids and they had like a little area where they would do their work. So it's up on their chalkboard. And I think my wife did this, but one Christmas had t-shirts made for everyone in the family with this motto on it. So (laughs) like the kids have gotten this sort of beat into their minds. And so don't complain don't bellyache. Just get after it. Do your job. And I think that's a great lesson for people at any
0: point at any age. Great. Well, Michael, thanks so much. It's always fun. My pleasure, Ted. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.